my name is Micah, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're going to continue in our time together this morning, and we are in a series, if you're new with us, we're in a series called A Better Story. Uh, um, and for all of our differences as humans, uh, which we could list off endlessly across cultures and race, religion, all the differences, one thing at least that we have in common is we all love a good story. We connect to different characters, we identify with various different themes, and uh, the reality that we've talked about in this series is that stories are not just entertainment, they are in a large part how we make sense of reality in the context of story. Uh, as the church, often we can tend to communicate to the world in truths. This is what we believe, this is what you should believe. But a lot of times those truths are disconnected from the beautiful story to which they belong. And we've also unpacked a little in our series how Hollywood, in contrast, is cranking out one beautiful story after another, which is actually, I think, what is moving the hearts and minds of culture. I read this week that Americans spent $6.5 billion last year on movie tickets. $6.5 billion, and that was over double the previous year, which was $2.9 billion. Now, I know this is post-COVID, and there's some context there, but I think it at least hints at the possibility that people turn to stories to make sense of their lives. And this is why, if you've read the Bible at all um, or looked at it, you know that the Bible is written not as a religious manual or, or a comprehensive concordance of theological data, but as a story. The Bible, for all of its diversity of literary styles, it's got poetry and history and prophecy and even personal letters. Uh, it's written over 1,500 years by 40 different contributors, and yet we have this cohesive story of who we are, of how we got here on this planet, of why we exist as humans, but also, where is all of this headed? You've probably noticed, though, the title of the series is not The Christian Story. We're not just saying, hey, here's the Christian story. We are calling it a better story. And I know that's a bit risky in our culture to say this story is better than other stories. But at the same time, I... I realized we're very comfortable with comparison. How many of you have ever been on RottenTomatoes.com? <laughs> recognize that? There was a season where I like looked up everything on Rotten Tomatoes and I had to be like step away from, from the computer um, because it's a really fascinating website that compiles all of these reviews of a, of a specific movie and then it rates it either fresh or rotten. Yeah, and it's like a red tomato or a green one. And you, you know, you read all of these reviews and they're they're going into things like, are, there, are the characters believable? Um, is the, does the plot make sense? Are there creative elements? All of these different factors uh, proving that we are very good at rating and examining stories. So each week we are talking about this story, how it does provide a better explanation for reality. It provides a better explanation for where we came from, uh, for why we have this insatiable desire to pursue meaning and purpose. But it also provides a better explanation for why we see things like war and corruption in the world. If you've paid attention to the news at all this week in war in the Middle East, you know the world needs a better story. We need a better story than, than this endless cycle of animosity and unforgiveness. 
We need a better story than trying to get along with people and tolerate people that we can't stand. And as much as evil requires us to respond, I think it is also important to remember that no amount of military strikes or peace talks will ever address the root of the problem. But friends, we have a better story, amen? The New Testament refers to this better story as the good news. And one of the best parts of this good news is that Jesus actually does address the root of animosity between people and between groups. One example of this is that Paul, in a couple of his letters, makes a statement. In Galatians, the statement goes like this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the implication here is that apart from Christ Jesus, outside of Christ Jesus and what his death and resurrection accomplishes, we get what we see in the news. That's what we have. And I want to be clear that Paul in this statement, as it could be misunderstood, is not diminishing the uh, reality or even the importance of distinctions, of, of race. You know, we tend to say, well, I'm, I'm colorblind. Well, God's not. And, and in fact, in Revelation, it says people from every tribe and nation and tongue are worshiping before the Lamb. It's beautiful. So we're, Paul's not saying, well, there's no race, there's no gender. What he's doing is destroying the illusion of privilege, of saying, I'm better than you because I'm blank. He's leveling the ground where we realize all of us have sinned, all of us have contributed to the problems in the world. And the reality is, as much as we're trying to assign, okay, who's right, who's wrong, there's only one who's right. There's only one who can bring us back to God, who promises to bring us back to the way we were meant to live as human beings. Friends, can you think of a better story than that? Jesus does not unite people by choosing a side and telling everyone to agree. He unites people by breaking down the walls that created the sides in the first place. The goal of the series though, is not just to learn this story and go, wow, isn't this great? It's to learn how to engage people with the story. Learn how to listen to people who disagree, and rather than waiting for that one little thing they say that, that, that highlights how different we are, we begin to tune into similarities, ways that the stories of the world and the stories of culture are actually borrowing from the Christian story. And when they say, I want justice, we say, so does God. <laughs> Let's talk about that now. And rather than trying to prove Christianity, which it seems the evangelistic methods have, have tried to do in the past, we simply invite people to reflect on their assumptions, to consider this better story. And so I, I'm excited, especially for the next two weeks, I just had to give a teaser because we're going to talk in the next two weeks about how do we engage with people who are far from God. Or if you want to think of it this way, who are on different pages than us, who are living out a different story, who don't see the facts the way we see them. How do we engage with people? Super excited for that. And we're going to start with Jesus, who better than that? Who, by the way, if you read the New Testament, you'll notice Jesus never approached two conversations the same way. He didn't have a script that he'd memorized. He's like, this is it. This is the moment. Um, he didn't have a method he was repeating. He treated people like individuals. He tuned into where they were at, and he actually referenced parts of their individual story. 
So I'm excited for that. But this morning, we're going to just continue with the story. And um, for the record, if you missed the first three weeks, I would just encourage you to get caught up because my heart and kind of my approach and style is to build um, chronologically, but also theologically with the ideas. And so if you want to watch those, you can go to our website. But just so that we're all kind of tracking this morning, let me give a quick review of the last three weeks. The main character, and can I involve you? Is that okay? All right. The main character of our story is God. Yeah, feel you got it. Yes, I love it. No, main character of our story is God. The first four words in the story are, in the beginning, God. 31 times in the first 31 verses of the story, God is referenced. So there's really no question. And, and as we continue in this beginning of the story, we learn that God is creative, that he's committed to his creation, and that God is good. At the end of every day of creation, it says, God saw that it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good because God is good. But this is where we have some legitimate questions. Why then do we have war? Why do we have murder and famine and sickness and death? Last week, we met our supporting cast where God literally saved the best for last. He created Adam and Eve, human beings, in his own image. Like nothing else, every other thing it says, God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. And for Adam and Eve, it says, God made from the dust of the earth. He shaped us in his own image. I love Donnie's definition that he gave of supporting cast. In the supporting cast in the story, in our case, uh, they are there to support the main character. Really important. They're there to help the main character achieve his goals, and they're there to move the story forward. That's a really great description of the purpose of humans, but for us to do that, we have to know why we're made. And that's what we see in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, the beginning of our story. All of this purpose God assigns to human beings. He talks about how we're made to work, to cultivate the earth, to rule over creation, but then a beautiful contrast to that is we're also made to rest and to enjoy his world. We're made to be creative and innovative. I love how God brought the animals to Adam and didn't say, here's their list of names. He said, you name them. How cool that God made humans essentially like him in his image. God is creative. He said, be fruitful, multiply. That's the image. So when God says, it is good, it is good. That's not simply a value statement. Like if I were to say this, ice cream is really good. It's a declaration of a purpose fulfilled. Do you see what I'm saying? So when God created light and he said, it is good, he's saying the light is doing what I made it to do. Right? So if I have a good light bulb, that's not me saying, oh, what a pretty light bulb. I like that. It, it's just saying it works, right? It works the way it was made to work. And so every day of creation, he's like, it's good, it's good, it's good until chapter three. And this is where we'll pick up our story this morning where Adam and Eve stop fulfilling their purpose the way God made them to. The image of God is distorted and so as you're turning to Genesis 3, I couldn't resist sharing a few uh, images that have been sketched of my wife and of me by some kids. Um, 
Yeah, uh, there, I, I love this. The first one was actually given to me after a message on a Sunday morning. I came down and this was hand-delivered to me by Maggie Jo Martinez. Um, but here's, here's that image. Let's see. First of all, I'm blessed, right? You love that? Um, but I think she did a pretty good job. You got the bald, the beard, the prayer hands right here. Um, I think she did a good job. In contrast, though, uh, there have been some sketches of my wife by, by our children. Do we have those? <laughs> by our children who are gifted in different ways. Um, the, the, one who, the one who drew the one on the left, actually when she finished, she said, quote, oops, you look like a duckling. <laughs> so, yeah. And then the one on the right, I was thinking, at least loves Jesus. So she's got that going for her. But um, my point is, if you know my wife, you know those are not accurate representations of my wife, right? Well, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see a similar misrepresentation of God. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you have a Bible, if you don't, by the way, those books in front of you um, in the Seabacks are Bibles. You're always welcome to use those. And if you don't have a Bible, take one. You, You can keep it as our gift to you. But chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other animal the Lord God had made. Now we have to pause here because if you were watching a a show, this is the introduction of a new character that we've never seen before. Um, And this is a very quick flyby. We could spend a lot of time on this. But the serpent is identified various times in the story and referenced back to and, and identified as Satan. Or the devil, and, and not maybe the serpent itself, but definitely he's using this creature in this moment. Uh, but it is important to know that before Satan was the antagonist of the story, which he clearly is, as you continue to read, he was actually part of the supporting cast. He was this beautiful angel created by God to serve humans, ironically. Hebrews chapter 1 defines and describes the role of angels as being made and sent to minister to us. But this angel, his name is Lucifer, which means bearer of light. He fell in love with his own beauty. He became proud. He wanted to be God. And so he was thrown out. He lost his place as this beautiful guardian angel. And it is generally believed that all of this took place before Genesis, before the garden, um, which it certainly could have, but I recently heard a pastor teaching and presenting a theory that Lucifer's fall perhaps took place in the garden, that that God actually placed him there to care for Adam and Eve, to minister, to oversee creation. Uh, And I went back and I read all of the relevant passages and some of it actually made sense. Whatever you believe uh, is fine on that. I just want to present uh, this as an option that maybe you haven't considered. Ezekiel chapter 28 is an example. It says of Lucifer, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And it goes on to elaborate on this beautiful adornment that that Lucifer had. But my point is that's a very different picture than this hideous creature hissing at Eve, right? It also would help us understand why Eve was so casual and comfortable interacting with this being. Uh, But either way, 
That's what we see as we continue in verse 1. Um, it says, he, the serpent, said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, we've seen this tactic of the enemy play out over and over in this story, but how many can say that they've also seen it play out in their own story? Satan twists God's words. He, he says, hey, what if God's not totally honest here? What if he's wrong? What if you're the one who knows what's right? But notice before Satan comes out and denies God's word, he, he's very clever. He gets us just to doubt, to say, yeah, maybe God is wrong. And, and that's what's going on. Eve is pondering and thinking when the serpent jumps in in verse 4 and says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I want us to notice here that Satan is not only pitching a rewrite to the story. He's like, yeah, I know God's, God's the main character and all of that. And he's written the story, but, but let's tweak it a little bit. But he's not only pitching a rewrite, he is suggesting a reversal of roles. He's saying to Eve, yeah, I know God's the main character, but what if that was you? What if you were in control, friend? What if you actually got to define what's right and wrong and there was no one to tell you what that meant? Do you see any evidence of that in the world today? He's still at it. Verse 6 continues, though, the, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, I don't know what it was, maybe a really colorful pomegranate or something, but it looked good. And also this desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, as I was reflecting on this uh, dramatic turn of events, I, I have to admit, it's always bothered me how Adam and Eve had this extravagantly generous God who, by the way, the enemy comes and says, did God say not to eat of any of the trees? What did God say? Eat of every tree, <laughs> except, except that one. Let me take care of good and evil, right? But, but Eve here is, is, is uh, in the presence of this amazing God, this beautiful garden. Adam and Eve have been given rule, authority over everything. Could it get any better? And I'm like, how could they so easily throw it away? One thing that I considered this week, which I hadn't really thought about up till this week, is that when God gave the command to Adam in chapter 2, verse 16, Eve hadn't been created yet. When God gave this command about which she's being questioned by the serpent, she wasn't alive when it was delivered. And so we assume that perhaps Adam passed that along to Eve. And I know some of this is speculation, but how many of you have ever played telephone? Right? You, you come up with a phrase and you whisper it in the ear of the person next to you and then they whisper it in the, and, then they, and then, you know, 10 down the line and it's embarrassingly wrong. Um, who knows, but, but it, it would seem from these verses and Eve's recounting of God's command that she missed something, that she maybe never fully understood the story. Look at verse 3 again. Eve quotes God as saying not to eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden or to touch it. Now, that is more or less what God said. It's more and less than what God said. 
Uh, and let me illustrate. In, in chapter 2, back in the original command, God said, you may eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat. Not just, well, that, that tree in the middle we're not supposed to. And I think there's something here, a principle for us, that, that I think in this moment, Eve remembered the rule without the reason. She, she, she knew where the tree was. She knew, well, we're not supposed to eat of that tree. But I wonder if she understood God's heart. I wonder if she understood that, that based on even just the name of that tree, God is saying, hey, let me take care of evil. Let me define right and wrong. I want you to be free to live and enjoy this world. I love you. I want to protect you. <laughs> I wonder if she fully understood that. And I think many times in our lives, in our culture, we can do the same thing. We remember the rules, but we forget the reason behind the rules. We hold up this standard which the world often sees, but we often lose sight of the story. One example I think that is glaring in culture is this teaching in the Bible that sex is for marriage. Right? If, if you try to talk to your friends about that, good luck. Um, that it's for a committed relationship, and the world hears a rule. They hear a standard. And many times, if we're honest, as Christians, maybe we feel the same way. That's restrictive. But what we maybe don't understand is God's heart of love and protection, and ironically, his desire that we would fully enjoy sex and flourish in our experience of it. That's not the way the world thinks, but that's the story behind the standard. So Eve, it, it seems, missed some of that story. Yeah, it's that tree in the middle. Okay, cool. Don't eat of that. I don't know why, but he said no. But then she also quotes God as saying not to touch it, which, again, I'm not trying to be too nitpicky, but if you look at the original command, God didn't say that. And you might think, oh, so what? If anything, that would, that would help her not to eat it. But when we add on to God's words... We get into some trouble because I can actually picture Eve pondering what the serpent is saying, thinking about it, and perhaps she actually reached out and touched it. And that would have been ample opportunity for the serpent to say, see, nothing happened. Why not go ahead and eat it? Now, again, this is, some of it is speculation. I, I think it's fun to use our imagination in things that we don't know for sure. But the non-speculative principle here is we have to understand what God says. Not just the rules, friends, but the reason, the heart, the story. And that has to come through in the way that we interact with people. But speaking of the story, this is where it takes a turn for the worst. Because having lost sight of God's benevolent boundaries, Adam and Eve eat. And I think what is interesting is leading up to Eve's decision to eat, she's not pondering what the serpent said She's not trying to decide if the serpent was telling her the truth. Look at what she actually, uh, the process that leads up. When she saw the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. You see, Eve is, Eve is imagining, saying, you know what she's doing here? She's beginning to write her own story. She's looking at something that was previously identified as a step in the wrong direction. And now it's becoming the path to everything that's right. Which again, we could go into endlessly about how we do that, how we see our world doing that, is saying, no, actually, this is the way to life. 
She's beginning to write her own story. She's imagining the dream, life, liberty, happiness, which in itself are good things, but the, the key is where do we get those things? Because we say, yes, you can have life, liberty, happiness, and here's how to get it. Friends, this isn't about fruit. This is about desires that every single one of us has uh, for, for pleasure and for fulfillment and for wisdom and relationship and intimacy and where God says, I will fulfill all of those. And we say, I don't believe you. Well, what happens They reach out and eat, and verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I'm trying to picture how this would have gone. Like, I don't think they had a needle and thread. Um, And really super awkward coverings. Like, I was actually picturing some of the, like, model runways these days, where some of the outfits they have on, I'm like, that's a good effort, you know, but I'm, I guess I'm, older now, so I don't get maybe the style and the fashion, but I I picture a little bit of that. Like, I've got a few fig leaves hanging on me. Um, And they're just like awkwardly trying trying to cover up where the promise of fulfillment and freedom and wisdom vanish. And it is replaced by something that they never could have imagined would happen. Someone at Mac recently shared a a quote with me um, from a French philosopher, Simone Weil, and she said, imaginary evil is romantic and varied. This is a a thinking quote here. Imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy, monotonous, barren, and boring. On the other hand, imaginary good is boring. Real good is always new, marvelous, intoxicating. Man, there's a lot to think about there. How Eve was looking at something and in her imagination it was this beautiful, wonderful thing and then in reality it was not. You know, there's a way that seems right to a man but in the end it leads to destruction and death. And, and on the other hand, there is a way in our world today that seems restrictive but it leads to freedom. And that's what she's saying here and, and, and the, first, the first evidence, the first fruit, if, if you will, of their decision to eat is shame. I think every one of us can relate to this desire, this instinct to cover, to cover up our failures, to cover our insecurities, to cover up our weaknesses. And, and, and maybe we don't use fig leaves, I don't. Um, but we use success. Look at all I've done. Maybe we cover up with silence and we just avoid conversation. Maybe we have a charade that we're sort of weaving this picture of ourselves that's not true. And when we realize we can't fully cover, like trying to press it down and it won't stay down, you know what we do? We numb. We do whatever we can to numb those feelings, to escape from those feelings. We use substances. We use entertainment. We distract ourselves any way we can. You know, C.S. Lewis, before he was a Christian, he hated Christianity. And he writes about it in his book, um, um, Surprised by Joy. I just blanked for a second. But um, he's writing about his experience before becoming a Christian where he hated the idea of Christianity and God and all of that. And, And he looked back on those years and he realized what was driving him. 
Because as, as the church, we might look at the world and say, well, everyone is just trying to be happy. And I would say in some sense, yes. But listen to how C.S. Lewis reflected on his life before Jesus. I was far more eager to escape pain than to achieve happiness. Friends, I think that is so insightful because, especially because it is not just the world that can relate to this. I think we in the church can say, oh, yeah. That's why I do some of the things that I do is to escape these feelings. The reason alcohol abuse has increased 23% in the last couple of years. Drug abuse has increased 16%. And get this, this blew my mind. Deaths from synthetic opioids have increased 2,200% in the last 10 years. Is this because people are chasing the American dream? No way. This is because people are living with pain. They're trying to numb, they're trying to cover feelings of shame, of guilt, nagging questions of meaning and purpose that the stories of culture can't answer. And even entertainment, which I know is like a sticky topic, and I'll just be the first to admit I love a good movie, I love TV shows. The whole basis of the series is based on story, right? But then I was thinking about the number of hours that we spend, that I spend sometimes. Americans watch an average of four hours a day of TV. Four hours a day and then three and a half hours with their phone was the t- statistic. And I'm like, I think that's low. But if you think about that, first of all, again, I'm thankful for my phone. I'm thankful for these stories. I love a good movie, a good show. But it just occurred to me, how many hours a day are we hitting pause on our own story? So that we can, sometimes if we're honest, lose ourselves in the stories of others. And I'm not saying let's not watch movies and and shows. I'm saying let's just think and reflect on why. Why this increase? I think a lot of it is because we don't want to feel certain feelings. Over 100 years ago, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous atheist, made the well-known and audacious statement that God is dead. Uh, interestingly, after he passed, someone made a statement that said Nietzsche is dead with God at the bottom. But anyway, that's probably, <laughs> that's probably bad taste. But when he made that statement, he also predicted that guilt and shame, the feelings of guilt and shame, would go away. Because, of course, with no moral lawgiver, there is no right or wrong, and therefore there's no reasonable basis for guilt. <laughs> but, of course, we know in experience that has not happened People still live with these feelings. And the point is, the Christian story explains why. Feelings of guilt are simply symptoms of the reality of guilt. Right? right? If, if we have a creator, if it's true that there's a, a life giver who has standards for creation and we've rejected those standards, then when I feel a feeling of guilt, that's actually like a, a, um, a warning light on the dashboard of your car. What do you do in that moment? If you're like me, you keep driving and you hope it turns off, right? And and I think that's one of the ways that we cope with those feelings as humans, especially American humans. Just keep pushing. Just keep driving. Achieve more, right? But another thing that we do, um, I had a light once. It's this uh, tire inflation light, which is terrible. I hate it. And I've called the mechanic. He says it's it's not going to go away. And I've literally considered just putting a piece of electrical tape over it. 
and just so I don't have to look at it. And that's another way we often deal with problems. As much as I am thankful for the, the, um, the benefits of psychology and therapy, which all truth is God's truth, and we as humans are complex, mind, body, soul, spirit, but I think a lot of therapeutic approaches and medical approaches are designed to numb, designed to take away the feeling or to address a symptom. But friends, we have a better story. Do you believe that? We have a God who not only knows the guilt and the the roots of the guilt in more detail than we're comfortable with, but he is the God who made a way for us to be forgiven of all of it without any shame. (laughs) Is there a better story than that? If your car is broken, the right answer to my question earlier is you take it to the one who made it or at least to someone who knows it and can fix what's wrong. But the sad reality for people in our culture is we live with these feelings every day, but people don't have a story that makes sense of where they come from. Shame and guilt don't make sense from an evolutionary worldview. They go, I don't know why I'm feeling this, and so we also have no solution to deal with them. The Bible provides both. So Adam and Eve eat and, and they're covering up their shame. You picture them awkwardly, ready for the, you know, the, the runway. They've got their little outfits on. Um, and verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I think it's another way we, we cope is not only try to cover, but we just hide from people. I don't want to get into some conversation where they're going to start asking me things. Verse 9, though, says the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? I think it's fascinating that Eve sort of led Adam into this in a sense, but God called to the man. Perhaps the woman misunderstood the story a little bit, but Adam knew exactly what was going on. And so he calls to the man and um, and I think, friends, this is a powerful moment because God knew what had happened. Was God wondering what happened? No. He knew what would happen. He could have just come at them with his list of charges and said, you're guilty and here's why. But next week, we're going to be talking about what? How do we engage with someone who's far from God? And this is lesson number one. See, sometimes as Christians, I think we fall into two errors. We are either scared to say anything or we're too eager to say everything. Right? Like, I, I don't want to say anything to be identified with Christians, because I don't like what Christian has become and how people view it, so I'm just going to be quiet. Or we're like, okay, I've got three minutes, and that person just referenced something that I could get the gospel into, and and we go after it, right? But God comes to Adam. Uh, First of all, it says, in the cool of the day, is timing important with evangelism? The most refreshing part of the afternoon. I I love what Spurgeon says about this, and um, He says, God comes not in the dead of night when the glooms of darkness increase terror, not in the heat of the day, lest Adam should imagine that God came in the heat of passion, not in the early morning as if in haste to slay, but at the close of the day, for God is long-suffering, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Imagine, friends, what the world could look like if Christians were more like that. If people were more like that, God comes in the cool of the day and he asks, where are you? 
I love that that's an open-ended question. Unlike me saying to my kids, why didn't you clean your room, right? I'm not looking for an answer. You know, I'm trying to make a point. God just says, where are you? Maybe today we would say, hey, how are you doing, really? Or in our eagerness to share the story, what if we started by just saying, hey, what's your story? And we took the time to listen to people. In asking this question, God communicates to Adam and we communicate to others, I care. And I'm, I'm here, I'm interested in your experience of this situation, as messy as it is. Where are you? But this also awakens something in people where they begin to think, where, where am I? Am I where I want to be? Is the story I'm living out one that makes sense? Well, Adam lets us into his process in verse 10, this beautiful moment. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. For all of the messiness of this fall, we just have to appreciate the authenticity here. He opens up to God completely. I was scared. How many of us are willing to admit we're scared? I was scared because I realized that I was naked, and so I, I hid, I hid from you. And this would have, again, been a uh, perfect opportunity for God to strike and say, because you ate. But God asks another question. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Friends, I was reflecting on something this week. The number of questions we're willing to ask people is a reflection of our desire to really know them. Can I say that again? The number of questions we're willing to ask in a non-weird way, okay? Like, don't have a card in your back pocket and be like, I have three more to get through, right? But the number of questions we're willing to ask reflects our desire to get to know people. I actually am curious because we can ask a question, but then in their response, I'm formulating my response, right? What if instead of formulating a response, you were thinking of another question? Tell me more about that. That's what God models for us here. As the story continues in verse 12, sadly, Adam's authenticity ends here. Uh, because rather than saying, God, yes, I ate. I knew better. I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. Verse 12, Adam said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. In other words, God, this is her fault. And if it's not her fault, it's yours. You gave me this woman. The woman is the one who did this. And so God turns to the woman and says, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. At least I think she does a little bit better than Adam. But in addition to covering and hiding and all the ways that we do that because of shame and guilt, one of the most effective strategies for alleviating feelings of guilt is shifting blame. It's pointing the finger at someone else. Because if I can convince myself that you're the problem, then I am the victim. And victims, by definition, are not morally responsible. Now, I want to be careful and super clear. There are victims in the world, many, and it is sad. But I'm referring to this growing trend in today's culture, which actually, as we see here, is just an age-old coping mechanism to offload our feelings of guilt onto the other, right? Uh, we find a person, or in most cases, a group that can bear the weight of all the problems. 
This is their why. Their why that all of this has fallen apart. For some of us, I'm getting a little personal here, but for some of us, that group might be liberals. They're the group. For some in the world, it's Republicans. You see how I'm trying to talk to both sides? They're, it's because it's of them. Uh, for some of you, that group may be a group like Black Lives Matter. Put all the guilt on them. They're the problem with the world. And for many in our world today, friends, it's Christians. It's those religious people. But we find our group and we convince ourselves they are morally reprehensible, right? There is no good quality to them. They are the problem in the world. And so actually that then, if I can convince myself of that, justifies me in wanting to silence them because they have nothing good to contribute. Shh. And we do this. One of the best examples that I've seen, which makes me smile and also makes me a little sad, is every election, Republicans with the Democratic president and Democrats with the Republican president, right? They're just totally all bad. I know why they got elected. They got elected to ruin America. There is no way they have any good intentions for this country. And I, you were laughing, but I, guys, I hear this all the time. It's just this the idea that they're totally evil, and then my candidate is totally the Messiah. And it's ridiculous. But we find that group where we say, uh, in, in Adam's case, it's Eve. In Eve's case, it's the serpent, where we can pin all the problems on them. And it is profoundly effective, not only for alleviating our feelings of responsibility and saying, ah, I've contributed to the problem too, but it's also really effective at building up walls between people groups, race and religion and all of the things where we can't even talk to each other anymore. We don't even know how to interact so what's the alternative? <laughs> For the record, it is not sticking our head in the sand and denying the negative impact of different groups. But it's taking a minute to reflect on your own, to realize I have contributed to the problem. And that might be somewhat easy for us as Christians because we're familiar with the language of, of humility and confession. And yeah, we're all sinners, I get that. And yeah, I'm a sinner. But the flip side of that coin that I think is a little more radical for the church, not only I've contributed to the problem, but people in that other group have contributed to the solution in ways that I haven't. What if you could say that? What if you could say, I don't agree with all their theology. I think they're messed up on some of their assumptions. But man, they're doing a better job with justice than me. And what that does is it opens a door for me to look at them again and to talk to them and to say, you know, they have some things that actually reflect the image of God. And this is when walls start to come down of people who are genuinely curious to move toward others. But the Christian story, again, explains why we're at odds, why there's animosity, why we have war and guilt and shame, but it also tells us how to solve those problems how to address it, how to be reconciled, how to have peace and forgiveness in relationships. So as we close, the answer is Jesus. And we don't have time um, this morning. This would be a terrible story if we stopped here, um, but we have to because of time. But next week, we're going to pick up with, with Jesus, not just the death and resurrection of Jesus, but his life 
how he engaged with people who were far away from God. And we're going to learn from that. But, but the beauty of Jesus is that not only is he the main character, friends, he is the one that God put all the guilt on. He's the one that God put all of the shame on. Jesus is the scapegoat. So we don't have to find one in our society. Jesus bore all of our guilt and all of our shame so that we could be forgiven. And so next week, we're going to get into God's solution to the problem of sin. And our, our uh, worship team can come. And, um, and I just want to let you know, even though we're stopping right uh, before, I think, the best part of God's solution to sin and Jesus. You don't have to wait till next week to meet Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is here right now with us as he promised, I will send you my spirit. My spirit will be with you and will live in you and will guide you into all truth. And those who have come to God and repented of their sin and said, God, I have done wrong. God, I messed up, are actually brought back to God through Jesus Christ and are forgiven of their sin and their guilt. That's the best story in the world. And someone this morning after the first service said to me, what would have happened if Adam and Eve had done that? I don't know. It would have been a different story, though. But one of the uh, beautiful ironies in this story related to confession and repentance, which feels so wrong to us, because I need to cover, I need to hide. And confession and repentance is the opposite of that. But one of the beautiful ironies of the story among many is the very actions that seem to invite shame are actually God's path to be free from shame. That, that, that we hold back thinking, okay, no, but it's gonna bring shame. And God is like, you're actually just driving the shame deeper. And he lays out this path over and over in the New Testament in this beautiful story based on the blood of Jesus that we can bring our sin into the light because God put it all on Jesus so that we can be totally forgiven and free and we don't have to hide out and pretend that we don't mess up or that we're better than people. We can say, no, I've screwed up in big ways. And Jesus forgives me of all of that so I can be new and I can live new. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give this time of response to you, Lord. I pray that this would be a space where we could respond to what you're doing and saying. Lord, as, as much as it is our tendency to do what Adam and Eve did, to, to hide, to cover, to avoid, God, help us not make the same mistake they made. Help us move toward you. Help us be honest. Help us move toward each other, God, in confession and repentance and just... Just say no to the fear that keeps us paralyzed in those places of shame. Jesus, we pray by your Holy Spirit, according to your will, you would break chains of guilt and shame in this place today. That you'd break the cycle of shame in the lives of people who are here, people watching online. Jesus, you are powerful enough to eradicate that from our lives. Lord, help us respond to the work you want to do. In Jesus' name.